Well, good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend, I should add. We are, or let me say it this way, this is week number four in our Weapons of Self-Destruction series where we're looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ enables us to overcome the downward pull of sin, personal sin, what we're calling these weapons of self-destruction. So we've looked at pride, we've looked at envy and anger, and now today we're going to look at the down, we're overcoming the downward pull of lust and sexual temptation. The statistics are alarming. Porn and sex-related sites now account for 60% of all daily internet activity. 60%. 50% of hotel guests purchase porn for their rooms. 90% of all 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography, those that have web access, I should add, have viewed pornography in the average age in our culture of first exposure continues to go down. I don't need to tell you, uh, we live in a sex-saturated culture. Where now, all sorts of things are just a click away. I know my own battle in this area, my own battle with lust, and I've been a pastor long enough uh, to know yours. But this morning, I am not here to condemn. I am here to help you overcome by the power of the Spirit, just as the Spirit is enabling me to overcome. And to do that, I want to look this morning, this Memorial Day weekend, at what the Bible has to say about what lust is, why it's so dangerous, and how we can be delivered from it. So the definition, the danger, and the deliverance. And our primary passage is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 3. So would you stand with me? As I read God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now you may be seated. What I want to do is I want to zero in as we begin on the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Because here we have a contrast, not in passionate lust, but in this contrast we find a biblical definition 
of lust that I want to take a few minutes and tease out. So Paul says, control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, but not, not, not in passionate lust. So what is lust? Lust is sexual a desire that is unholy and dishonorable. Now, the holy here has a vertical dimension. It's a reference to the holiness of God. So lust disregards God, disregards the holiness of God. Honor has a horizontal dimension. And lust, therefore, dishonors the object of your desires. So that brings us to a definition Lust is sexual desire that disregards God and dishonors humans made in the image of God. Now Paul in this passage, I mean the entirety of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we just read, is implying something I do not want you to miss. We're going to talk about the lust in a minute, but I want you to understand that in this passage, Paul is not down on sex, he is down on the distortion of sex. He is not saying avoid sex, he is saying avoid at all costs sexual immorality. And he is implying, therefore, that holy and honorable sex is a very good thing. In other words, here we discover, and this is by inference implication, Paul is pro-sex. As a matter of fact, the Bible has the most positive view of sex of any ancient holy book. After all, it was God's idea. God thought it up. God created it. And he gave it as a gift to Adam and Eve from the very beginning, at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. And so over and over, we see this positive view throughout the Scriptures. For example, in Proverbs chapter 5, husbands and wives are, are commanded to be ravished with each other. And two books later, in the Song of Songs, we have a celebration, a rather lengthy celebration of sexual love. Now, all of this in the Bible is in the context of the exclusive covenant commitment of marriage between one woman and one man for life. So we have a very positive view of sex throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk to Rhonda about this this afternoon. We will have this conversation. But now let's come back to this. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, first of all, Paul tells us that sexual lust is different. It is not governed by God's holiness. It disregards God. Now, we see a positive example 
uh, of this vertical orientation towards living in light of the holiness of God in any given moment in the life of Joseph way back in Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife continues to attempt to seduce Joseph and Joseph resists saying, how could I commit such wicked evil and sin against God? In that moment of temptation, Joseph is protected. Joseph overcomes because of his regard for the holiness of God. Lust disregards it. Now conversely, the momentary loss of this vertical orientation, I live in light of the holiness of God, is why David, King David, committed adultery. And later was confronted and admitted it. In Psalm 51, we have his confession. And then he says something a little strange at first in Psalm 51, when he says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. Now, David knew he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband. But David says, against you and you alone, God, I have sinned. That's that vertical orientation. Ultimately and primarily, I have disregarded the holiness of God. And I succumbed to lust. Victory in sexual temptation delights in the holiness of God. Failure disregards it. But there's not just a vertical orientation here, there's also this horizontal orientation. Because sex dismeans and dishonors the object of one's lust. Lust says, I want your body, not you. Lust says, I want to experience the pleasure of your body, but I don't want to have responsibility for you as a whole person. I don't care about you as a whole person. I don't want any sort of permanent commitment or responsibility. I just want my pleasure to be realized. Interestingly, going back to Genesis 39, after Joseph rejects Potiphar's wife, this is exactly what we see happen with her. Because she immediately, upon rejection, goes ballistic and becomes furious at Joseph. Has him imprisoned. Why? Because she didn't care about Joseph. She only cared about the experience of his body. It's lust. Now this is what Paul means in verse 6. He, this is a reference to this horizontal orientation. No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. What is lust? Well, another way to say it is lust is wronging, taking advantage of people made in the image of God, the sacred image of God. So let's go on. Uh, uh, lust has this vertical dimension and this horizontal dimension, and, and that's my point. Now let's move to the danger of lust. 
And let me move into this by asking the question, why make such a big deal about sexual sin? I mean, today, after all, we're told it's really a private matter, usually between two consulting adults. So why the big deal? I mean, shouldn't we focus on terrorism or global hunger or human trafficking? And here in our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul not only says no, he says a thousand times no. Look at how he puts it in the second sentence of verse 6. The Lord will punish. Now, I'm not going to water this down. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we, told, as we have repeatedly told you. It, it, it was a theme, if you will, in Paul's teaching. Now today, in our, by today I mean in our culture, we have this all convoluted, all, all messed up because today we think the worst possible thing that could happen to a person is that they would die and right behind that is that their de desires would be denied, especially their sexual desires. But let me um, come back to this, but look at what Jesus says. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman, and here we have it lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And here's how he wraps this up. But if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Strong language. Why? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying there is something worse than death or the denial of your desires. And that is the judgment of God. Being cast into hell, if you will, because of your uncontrollable lusts. And I go to Matthew chapter 5 because I want you to understand here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making the same point Paul does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul says, God will punish. Now, God's not going to punish you if you die of cancer. Not, God's not going to punish you if you live a hard life. God's not going to punish you if some of your dreams aren't realized. But God's going to punish us if we ignore his warnings about lust. If we fail to understand that heaven and hell are at stake with what we do with our eyes, what we do with our thoughts, what we do with our nights. And so for those of you that are students, those of you that are young adults, actually all of you, I want you to understand that heaven and hell is at stake with what you do with your phone. With your laptop. With your conversations. Uh, when you're alone. Now the point isn't, uh, Jesus' point, Paul's point isn't that a true believer can lose his or her salvation because 
they lust. We all lust in different forms and in different degrees. The point is a true believer doesn't disconnect one's faith from one's sexual life. And Jesus is saying a true believer will battle lust with the kind of radical seriousness that is willing to gouge out one's eye. And I say, wow. So what's the danger of lust? The danger is that God punishes sexual sin. Now don't misunderstand. We all sin sexually in little ways, and sometimes in big ways. But this is exactly why Jesus Christ went to the cross. To die in our place for our sins because God punishes sin. And on the cross, Jesus took on all our sexual sin. Past, present, and future. All of it. He took that load upon his shoulders. And all of that was nailed to the cross. So the moment you and I believe in Jesus, that is, we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, as our sacrificial substitute, if you will, the Bible promises us, because Jesus was punished, we are totally forgiven. We are completely accepted. And we are made righteous in Jesus Christ, because Jesus bore the punishment, therefore we will never bear that punishment. And that's the good news of the gospel. But what I want you to understand in chapter 4 of Thessalonians and what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, we have this picture of both of them teaching us that just as sexual purity doesn't save us, on the contrary, rampant chronic sexual impurity may reveal that we've never been a believer, or saved in the first place. It may reveal that because there's been this disconnection between one's faith and one's belief. So that's the danger. Now let's go on and ask this final, this important question. Where's the deliverance? How can we be delivered? How, how can we overcome and to get at this, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God speaks to Adam and Eve and tells them, you two are free to eat from any tree in the garden except one. So how many trees were there that God had created with fruit in the Garden of Eden? Were there 10? Were there 20? Were there 30? Were there 100? We have uh, no knowledge. But God didn't say you can't eat from this type of tree. He said you can't eat from this one tree. You can't eat from hundreds of trees. You can only not eat from one tree. And one restriction and one boundary. Now have you ever asked yourself the question why? Why in this garden of perfection with 
everything available to Adam and Eve. Why this one boundary? Well, consider the alternative. If there was nothing humans could do to demonstrate their mistrust of God, then there would be nothing humans could do to demonstrate their trust of God, their trust in God. So this one tree was their one opportunity to demonstrate each and every day their ongoing allegiance to God. Now, it's the same thing for each and every one of us every day with our phone with our computer, with what we do when we're alone. That's your tree. And it's no different than the tree that was forbidden in the Garden of Eden. And now there was nothing wrong with the tree in itself. The tree was beautiful. There's nothing wrong with a cell phone, a computer, or, you know, the different things we are doing. That's not what I'm saying. But it becomes quickly wrong when we violate God's intention. So if I understand Genesis 3, and here I'm moving to my point on this, the fundamental issue in the Garden of Eden was trust. And the fundamental failure was mistrust, not pride. Adam and Eve didn't trust God enough in the moment to do what he said. So here's the application that I draw from Genesis chapter 3. You and I don't have a lust problem, we have a trust problem. Uh, We don't have a lust problem, we have a trust problem. And the primary step we can take to overcome our battle with lust is not what we do, it's what we believe in the moment of temptation. Uh, Do I believe in God or do I believe in my feelings? Do I believe that what God says is right because what he says is beautiful or do I believe my feelings are right uh, because I'm feeling them? Now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Paul says in verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now I want to focus on uh, this last phrase or clause, who do not know God. Here Paul is making the same point as in Genesis chapter 3. Paul is saying we have a lust problem because we have a knowing God problem. Not knowing God is the root cause of our lust. And not knowing God and not trusting God, as I argue that's what Genesis 3 is about, are two sides of the same coin. But here, when Paul talks about knowing God, please, please understand, he's not talking about mere head knowledge. I can check this box, I can check that box. He's talking about both head knowledge and heart knowledge. He's talking about the experience of living in the presence of God. It's what the psalmist says when the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not an invitation to a definition. That's an invitation 
to an experience. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes, the Bible wants you to know in your brain that God is good. But the Bible more profoundly wants you to live in light of the experiential reality in your heart of knowing that my God is good to me and my God will be good to me in in this moment. And when we know God, as the Bible talks about knowing God, uh, God's mercy, God's love, God's goodness, God's righteousness, God's truth overwhelms us, it stuns us, it empowers us, it changes us, it, it frees us from the moment of sexual temptation. So the primary step, what is the primary step, step we can take in overcoming lust? We daily welcome and treasure Jesus above all else. Now, I've been at this battle long enough to know that the key to overcoming lust is trust. Absolute confidence in God in the moment of temptation. Now, This welcoming and treasuring, this trust, this knowing God has four legs. So I want to conclude by giving you four action steps. Four things, specific things, building on this, flowing out of this, that we can do in our battle, our daily battles with sexual sin. Now, if you have your Bibles opened, if you go back to verse 4 in chapter 4, there's an important word there, and it's the word learn. Paul is saying this is a learned behavior. This, and battling our lust. To me, that's a very positive thing. You and I can learn to change. You and I can learn to grow. Paul says, learn to control. And so let me give you four, a fourfold strategy, four action steps. And here's the first. You admit it. What do, what do I mean? I mean you admit your sexual failure. You admit the things that go on in your mind or the things that take place in your heart and the push and pull of your desires. And you're, you know what? You're open and honest about your weakness and you confess it to God. Now, now, let me create the basement or the platform for this. To be a believer in Jesus Christ, as I just said, means we're totally forgiven, totally loved, totally accepted. And when you get that, it creates a security that frees you to live a life of confession. I'm concerned that confession is a dying art among evangelicals in our modern world. But to the extent I know, to the extent I I believe that Jesus completely and totally loves me, uh, then I'm free to confess. And instead of running from Jesus because of guilt, I run to Jesus because of of grace. Here I am again, Jesus. This is the 999th time I I failed in this area. 
And I bring it to you and I confess it to you because you command me to confess sins. Because you don't want any distance, any grass growing between our, our relationships. So here I am, I, I'm confessing this to you. It's a discipline in, in my life. I'm pleading with you uh, to change me. And I know your throne is a throne of grace, not condemnation. So you will admit it and you will not pretend with others. You will not pretend with your spouse. You will not pretend with yourself if you understand your security in Jesus Christ. Now let's go on. After you admit it, you avoid it. Now what I mean here is you avoid the sights and the situations that create temptation in your life. Because you recognize you may only have a few seconds to respond appropriately. So you look away or you click away or you say no out loud or like Joseph you run and maybe you do an ultra and you run for another 50, 100 miles. You just don't stop. But you do everything you can to avoid that situation. You avoid it. You've admitted it. You confess it. And now you give yourself to avoiding it. There was a British Puritan, one of the most famous of all the Brit Puritans, by the name of John Owen, who in his book on uh, sin made this incredible statement. People quote it all the time. Be killing sin or sin will kill you. Be killing your sin or your sin will kill you. Now, if you are a person that really battles in this area, I want to invite you to memorize a verse that has really helped me. It's Romans 8.13. Where Paul says, for if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now let me say two things quickly. We are not equal to this. We can't do this. We can't fight this battle on our own. God gives us a spirit. And it's the spirit that enables us in the life of the believers. We look at Christ to overcome. And, and the second thing I want you to understand, and this is really, this is where this verse has helped me a lot, is wrapped up in this term misdeeds. You and I are not less um, spiritual than somebody else because we have misdeeds, we have thoughts. We all have misdeeds. The problem isn't the reality of misdeeds, the problem in your life and my life is the failure to put them to death. They're a given. Now the question is, what are you going to do? You're going to put them to death? So Owen was right. And this is exactly what this verse says. Be killing sin or sin will kill you. Now let me go on to the third leg of this. You flip it. And by flip it, I mean uh, you immediately flip in your mind from the sweetness of the temptation, and temptation is only temptation because it's sweet. 
You flip in your mind from being locked on the sweetness of the temptation to seeing Jesus as infinitely superior. So you flip. This is in your mind. Saying no is not enough. You have to move from defense to offense. You have to make that transition. So you attack the inferior promises of sin with the superior promises of, of the Savior. Lust. Now this is a secret. I'm letting you on an, on a secret about lust. Lust over promises and under delivers. You were made to treasure Christ above all else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and, and, and all your strength. Uh, more than you love sports or shopping or summers. And some places will have summer, I've been told. Uh, more than sex. But when you have little taste for Jesus, then your pleasures, then your lusts are going to triumph. So it's not just a question of avoiding. It's not just a, a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. It's you falling in love over and over each and every day with Jesus and the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of forgiveness and all that Jesus has done for you. One of my favorite authors, American theologians, one of my favorite statements that Jonathan Edwards has ever uttered, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. I tell myself this over and over. It's how I flip. Uh, that these things aren't ultimately going to satisfy me. A perfect marriage, a perfect house, a, you know, a perfect this or perfect that. What's going to ultimately satisfy me is the enjoyment of God, the experience of who God is and his goodness and his mercy. And that's how I'm going to find uh, satisfaction. You see, you flip it when you tell yourself, God offers me a better deal. Tell yourself that. God offers me a better deal. God offers me a deeper delight. Now let me go on and let me conclude. You cling to future glory. The glory that will be yours as a believer in Christ the moment you step into heaven. Look at how Paul describes this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. This is a promise from God to you as a believer. There is a day coming when God is going to raise you from the dead by his power, and he's going to place you right at the center of the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and your eternity will be an eternity of growing and learning and experiencing the wonder of living in the presence of an infinite God. And it will take you throughout eternity to begin to understand all that God has done for you. He is going to raise you up. And so I want to invite you today to cling to that promise. Just as children can cling to the promise when their parents say, next year we're taking you to Disneyland. Paul 
is promising Disneyland times infinity. Cling to that in your discouraging moments. Uh, Cling to that uh, when you're frustrated. Maybe, for example, you've never been married and therefore you've never experienced sexual intimacy like you desired. Not even once. Or maybe you're in a marriage, but this is an area that's kind of messed up in your marriage. Or, or maybe you have made so many mistakes in the past that your mind is seared, uh, that your heart uh, uh, feels dirty, your body feels dirty. Cling to this promise of glory. The power of God, the future of heaven. And don't, in your dark moments, let it go. I'll conclude with this. There's a story about a king, a good king, that left the castle and went out to the village one day to meet some of his subjects. And along the way, he encountered a beggar who was sitting by the side of the road, uh, lifting up his bowl, expecting the king to give him some money. Now, it was said in the villages that this king had magical powers. So the beggar lifted up his bowl, expecting some money. But the king asked him, the beggar, to give him something instead. Uh, The king said, hey, I'm not going to give you something. I want you to give me something. And the beggar was shocked. And he realized that all he had his only earthly possession was a bag of rice. So as the king is standing there, the beggar kind of does this, moves the bag of rice behind him so the king won't see it. And as he's doing it, he pulls out three um, uh, kernels of rice and he places them in the king's hand. The king walks away. The beggar looks down into his bowl and there are three nuggets of gold. And he immediately said, if only I had given him everything. Have you given Jesus Christ everything? Have you given him your sexual life? There is a glory, there is a day coming when he will fill bowl after bowl for you with gold. No one, no one loves you like Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you this morning knowing how much you love us, knowing how much you have done for us, knowing how rich and full our lives in Jesus Christ are. And we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would bless us, that you would show us the wonder of the gospel, that Jesus died for me. So fill us, fill us this Memorial Day weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.